Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode one, I interviewed Dr. Jim Mahoney. I know Jim for my work with Patel for Kids. Jim is one of the most inspiring and captivating storytellers I know. He gives teachers really great advice on the five E's, the five principles that we as teachers may want to think about embracing in our teaching practice and in life. He also shares with us some of his findings when he interviewed teachers across seven states this spring on how remote learning was going during the pandemic. You will definitely want to tune in to episode one with Jim. Enjoy. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining me for the first Mindful Literacy podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here and look forward to just just having a conversation. Yes. And um, I remember when I interviewed at Battelle for Kids and I had gone through the different phases, you're like, just come in and have a conversation. And I was like, oh, sure. (laughs) But it was a conversation that we had. And um, one of the reasons I asked you to be on here was because working at Battelle for Kids was one of the highlights of my career. And I was telling my husband last night, every Monday morning, I'd wake up and be so excited to check my work email because I wanted to see what Jim had to say and how he was going to inspire the team that week. So my hope is that we can have a conversation and inspire teachers, especially young teachers just starting off this year. Sure. Well, for a teacher starting off this year, I can't imagine quite a start that they're having, but it's for for all teachers, of course, but I thought about, uh, uh, this is hard for me to say, but it's absolutely the truth. Uh, I began my first year of teaching 47 years ago. Uh, After getting out of the Army, it was 1973. Uh, In fact, for people in Central Ohio, to put that in perspective, it was the same time the continent opened. Uh, uh, And, which has now been closed for some time, but there, there are certain things that I, I still think are the same. And I, 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 I'll relate it to something that I did a couple of weeks ago. I serve as a facilitator for a group of districts that are located in seven states. And uh, one of the uh, things we did a couple of weeks ago was they gave me the names of teachers this spring who had really worked hard to try to embrace remote learning. And, and I'm going to use remote learning as a big bucket that, you know, some people call it distance, virtual. It's just simply not in place, not face to face. So it includes a whole array of things that you might do. So I met with those teachers virtually on Zoom meetings for three different days. There were about 30 teachers and we just had conversations about What'd you do that seemed to work? What are things that didn't work? What are the things you struggled with? Uh, And it's not to endorse virtual learning as much as it is to learn from it. 
these are the early stages. And I guess I've always been a believer that if you want a good idea, you need lots of ideas. And most ideas are those that are built upon ideas. So that was the whole idea was to share ideas. I told him we weren't going to call it uh, pandemic best practices. Uh, we don't even know if they were best. They were things that they did. Because what happened in March across this country was a sudden jolt. And everyone was, uh, if necessity is the mother of invention, that's what happened. And people began to figure out. Now, they had one advantage. They knew the kids. And uh, this fall as we start, uh, depending on where you are, uh, you, you don't have the advantage necessarily of knowing the kids. But uh, so we, we had lots of conversations. And I'll just share three or four things that, that they said that made sense. Because as schools start this year, uh, there's undoubtedly going to be some combination of in-person or remote learning, or in some cases, just remote learning. Because schools are trying to balance both uh, of course, they want kids to be back in school. But at the end of the day, safety and health is first. But they also understand not being back in school presents some risks. So they're trying to balance all these and mitigate it. So uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real challenge. But here are some things that we at least learn from those teachers. And, and, and I'm going to add one caveat to it. One of my favorite writers is Adam Grant. And one of his books was called The Originals. And he even adds in it that during Thomas Edison's perhaps most prolific time, when he invented the phonograph, uh, when he uh, invented the light bulb, he also had a hundred other patents that never resulted in widespread practices. So the things that I offer are starting points. They're not, uh, they're not even guidelines, but they're things that teachers talked about. Uh, here was one that I found really interesting, was to think about changing your frame. Uh, a middle school teacher told me, said, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how are we gonna assign something that the kids may not cheat? Said, we realized we were asking the wrong question. We changed our frame, we said, the question is not how can we stop you from cheating, the question is how can you show how you've learned individually? And when we changed that reference, then it made the conversation much richer and easier. So I thought about changing your frame, that it's not just about doing what you used to do in an old way, uh, in a classroom, in a new way. You have to change your frame. I'll give you one other one. I, I think this is interesting from, uh, in Mississippi, they have a thing called swivel teachers. And I asked the superintendent, he said, you know what a swivel teacher is? I said, no, I've never heard of it. He said, well, one of the things we're planning for this fall is teachers who volunteered, uh, knowing that some of their kids won't be in the classroom because they're either positive or their parents are afraid. But he said, at least right now, we're planning to open school. So imagine you have, uh, let's just pretend you have a self-contained third grade classroom. And maybe you have 13 kids and maybe you have seven who aren't. And a swivel teacher is, and they use the term because you, you know, swivel on your chair because the other kids have joined you by video. And they're not there for the whole day doing the same things. 
teachers planned over the summer, how do I include them in some class activities and only address them while at the same time I have my class and they're doing things? So they've spent the summer thinking about that, planning for that. And then they're being paid extra to both do that and then to try to accommodate it. So I just think it's that kind of thinking. When you change your frame, it's not who am I going to exclude, who am I going to include, and how might I include them in different ways. Uh, the other thing, a couple of others that came across as things that were useful in the spring was to keep it simple. Uh, at the end of the day, there's lots of technologies available and you can get very, very complicated with this. And the simpler you can keep it for both you and students and then build on to it. So if you have a platform that works and don't try to do too much and too many things. Uh, the, uh, it was really important that uh, 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 they have clear expectations and feedback. I, 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 I'll give you an example. I had a, now this is an N of one, so I don't pretend that this is widespread, but I had this interesting conversation with a fifth grader. Uh, and uh, we just talked and she said to me, she goes, you know, my favorite teacher in school, uh, after we had to go to this other way, I have a new favorite teacher. Well, that kind of got my attention. I said, now she liked both of them, but she said, in school, she said the one was just so warm and friendly and always felt good in her classroom. The other one was more, these are my words, not her business-like. And she said when she went to remote learning, uh, again, my words, the business-like worked better. She would come on and she would say, here's what you need to do. She was really clear. She would say, here's how you get it to me. And she always told us how we did. So she gave feedback. And uh, it was just it. She goes, I like that uh, because it was a different environment. And it was, you know, now the things I read into it is listening to her was, you know, like adults. None of us can stay in long Zoom meetings or hours on that. So communication is a powerful one too, of course. And, and you mentioned it, Battelle for Kids. And I would write those Monday newsletters uh, for decades. And part of it was my rationale is people are down on what they're not up on. And that's kids with teachers, that's principals with teachers, that's everybody, communities. Even if you're telling them you don't know, you're still telling them. Uh, so communicating, particularly in a situation like this, is really, really important. But I'm gonna go back to 47 years ago and I'm gonna connect this one, which I thought was the most important one they said. Relationships still matter. And teachers talked about having driveway meetings. They just knew they needed to go see some of their kids. So they got permission and they drove to driveways and the kids would come out to the front door and they just talked to them. I know a superintendent in Louisiana who has two high schools, very large, graduating classes of several hundred. It took him three weeks, but he went to the driveway of every kid and gave them a special thing and talked to them. And he said in doing that, the kids appreciated it. And he said, 
I had a whole different understanding and perspective of all my kids because I had been to all of their homes in some fashion or another and saw where they lived and how they interacted. Uh, but relationships matter. And that old adage about people don't uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care does matter. And that uh, I don't think that's changed. I don't think that's, that's changed at all. Uh, how we do it has changed. Uh, and finding ways to uh, uh, engage kids. I think that's and then the, the very last lesson I'll tell you that they said, and several of them said it in different meetings, the importance of extending grace. It's not going to be perfect here. Uh, and uh, technology doesn't always work. Directions aren't always understood. Don't expect perfection. We're going through this together and learning together. But I think uh, we often talk about in schools the importance of, you know, learning. Uh, that is what this is about for both adults and kids. We are learning this together. And I think when we get through this, uh, it'll never be one or the other. But I think we will have added some new tools to our repertoire uh, for meetings, for collaborating, for teaching students when they can't be or don't want to be in your school. Uh, and all of those things. So anyway, that's a bit too much, but I thought I'd just kick it off with that. No, I think this is great. I think, you know, I, I remember you even saying when I was at Battelle for Kids with you, you said that all the time, relationships matter. That was like the mantra. <laughs> it does. I mean, I just think, uh, you know, we often talk about culture trumping strategy and I still think that that's not a reason to not have good tactics. But at the end of the day, uh, look, I can, uh, well, here's the story. I can remember years ago, my first principalship. The, uh, I hope I'm not offending some principals by telling this, but if I do, I do. The, the shoe fits where? Uh, the first Friday of my first week of principalship, all the teachers gave me these lesson plan books. Now, these were these paper lesson plan books with these little two-by-three squares Monday through Friday. They piled them on my desk at the end of the day, the counter outside my office. And I said, what are these for? Well, our last principal collected all of our lesson plan books on Friday, and then he would give them back to us on Monday and uh, with feedback and questions. And I said... I don't know what I'm going to do this weekend, but I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not reading your lesson plan books. It was the 80-20 rule. 80% were quickly relieved, took them. 20% were irritated at me. And I said, I I'm not going to read those. So that was fine. Everybody, I didn't. <clears throat> the next week, there's still a handful of the 20% who wrote it back said, you need to read these. I said, I'm not reading these two by three inch squares. And I remember one teacher saying to me, he goes, how are you going to know what I'm doing? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a bet. Six weeks from now, I will have been in your classroom more than any principal has ever been in your classroom. And I won't have sat there and made a ton of observations to do an evaluation. I'll be in and out. I may come in and sit for 10 minutes. I may do this and that. We'll have lots of informal feedback. And I said, I'm going to tell you about your lesson plan. Do I think there's a relationship between planning and teaching? Of course. But at the end of the day, I'm just reminded of an A and I have 
who has 500 recipe books who can't cook. And at the end of the day, uh, don't tell me what you believe, show me what you do. Uh, I know there's a relationship, but what really matters is what you do. And I'll give you feedback on what I see. Because if I can sit there for 10 minutes and I can't figure out what you're doing, you really think I'd care what you wrote in that two by three inch square? So it is about relationships and planning and all these things go together. So it's, a, uh, it's an incredible job that's been made far more complicated uh, with the uh, pandemic, uh, but we've never needed teachers more. And I think for lots of parents this spring, their value has never been higher. And uh, so we'll, we'll figure this out. Absolutely. And I'm thinking too, I'm an intervention specialist and I, you know me, I am like data driven, the science of reading, let's do this. And there was such a huge shift this spring when we went virtual and it was, are you okay? How are you? And it was not going to worry about, you know, meeting your IEP goals right now. I need right. to you're okay. And you know, I'm, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I would be right. my face is up against the camera. Like, hello, are you okay in there? And I'm like, it was so good to see my students and know they're okay. We'd both be crying and we would just talk to each other. And at some point I realized, you know, and I work in a high performing school district, everybody is very motivated and data driven and what we want to see our students reach their maximum potential. Who doesn't? Um, but at some point I said, we need to shift our, our learning targets from the academics to the social emotional goals. And that right. is, you know, we are executive functioning skills right now. I had a front row seat to all of my students' frontal lobes, you know, talking about keeping it simple. We were throwing, we have, I work with some of the smartest, most hardworking, kindest people, and we have a lot of tools in our toolbox. And it was like, whoa, 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 let's pick one or two things to really focus on. Because I was in the background helping kids deal with the executive functioning issues of navigating how do they even access the platforms and how do they access what they're supposed to be doing and then how do they turn it in? It was like too much sometimes. So I love that. I love to hear that across the country. It was, it's keep it simple. Relationships matter. And going back to the, the principles of formative instructional practices, clear learning targets. Right. We think there is no research on this right now. There's yeah. No and you know, there's clarity. And the other part that you mentioned, because often we'll get into, I realize with IEPs, particularly uh, there are some things that, you can't do, but the question is not what can't we do. The question has to be, what can we do? And that's that changing the frame. And I'm not being Pollyannish about it, but at the end of the day, uh, when we're thrown into limitations, if all we think about the limitations, uh, then I think we really narrow the define and say, okay, let's figure out what was our goal from that? How, how might we begin to do this differently? And you start there because uh, I always think about that wonderful scene from the movie. I think it's Apollo 13. I used to show this clip where <clears throat> the engineers on the ground are given exactly what the astronauts have. 
and said, you have two hours to make this fit. Uh, and they did it. And that's what we have. So we're limited by space, et cetera. And you, it's the same sort of thing. So there's an opportunity uh, within, uh, despite the circumstances. Totally. And I think, you know, we've trained our teachers so well to take formative data, and that's what's going to drive our practice. Are we making a difference today to one person, <laughs> you know? And then I think about, um, ch you know, changing your frame, switching your perspective is actually, a, it's, it's really a yogic principle. It's a mindfulness practice that we need to keep our own mental health intact, to keep our community intact, and to, and to really work together as a universe. Well, you know what? Let me ask you, because <clears throat> I think this fits, because it is. It's very much about your frame of reference. So tell me a little bit about how your mindful practice uh, around literacy is going. Um, it's going great. I'm, I, you know, mindful literacy is really twofold. It's being mindful about how we're teaching literacy. And it's also bringing awareness and knowledge to mindfulness practices. And they go hand in hand particularly with the population that I work with. Um, when you can't read, when you're, when you're a struggling reader, that takes a huge toll on your social, emotional well-being. And so my, my mindful literacy practice is to balance this teaching of reading with nurturing the social, emotional development of children. And they go hand in hand. So some of my own yogic practices have been informing how I teach kids how to deal with challenges. And I think about that I was reading the story on your on your website about the red brick hill and your dad yeah. teaching you to read the bike, ride the bike up this huge hill. Sure. You couldn't have done it without your dad's support and encouragement. Even if he had told you all of the mechanics and how to ride that bike, he was That's there. right. When you got it, boy. Encouragement man. <clears throat> it uh, you know, I I, I I'm going to go back to, uh, I think about the, the question you asked about beginning teachers. Uh, I had an interesting experience. Uh, and it just happened. My first year of teaching, I taught sixth graders largely in a very uh, rural district along the Ohio River. And you, I, I laugh and say you couldn't have taught anywhere in Ohio and made less money. Uh, but I also couldn't have had better kids and more supportive parents. And so I taught sixth grade. I had about 24 kids. And the next year, the seventh grade teacher left. So I went to the seventh grade with them. So I had them my second year. And then sure enough, the next year, the eighth grade teacher left. <clears throat> I went to the eighth grade with them. So I was doing looping before we called it looping. And since it was a very stable rural community, I virtually had the same kids for three years. And you really got to know them. And uh, it was in those early years when I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do and that I found my real calling. I used to think, gosh, uh, I can barely survive financially, but who would pay me to do something that I enjoy so much? And I just thrust myself into it. Uh, I didn't have a family. I was single. Uh, and... Uh, it became my life, but it was one that I chose and I enjoyed. So it wasn't a sacrifice. I was thoroughly enjoying it. And one of the things we did, now this, this would have been before you were born, the bicentennial. Uh, 
people will remember this. Uh, we buried this time capsule and we put all these things in it that somebody would dig it up in a hundred years and try to reflect on our culture. What was this used for and books that we read and all those kinds of things. Well, then somebody had the idea that, well, why don't we dig this capsule up sometime in the future? And I remember teasing them uh, about when you want to do it here. And so the more we talked about, the more I liked the idea that we would all come back together. So sure enough, uh, we decided July 4th, 2000, we would come back together. So we buried that time capsule in the 70s and uh, Republic Supply and Marietta gave us the large fiberglass time capsule that we put everything in. We dug it. I kept a map of exactly where it could be dug up and all that. Uh, and uh, sure enough, nearly a quarter century lady, late quarter of a century later, a couple of those kids called me. I lived in another part of the state then. Uh, I was a school superintendent at that stage, uh, about uh, hundred miles away, and so I met with five of those kids as we planned that. Uh, and I laughed when I walked in this Bob Evans restaurant. I said, "Oh my goodness, you guys got old." And we laughed and we planned it. And sure enough, on that day, we had a little dinner the night before. And of those 24 kids, 21 of them showed up. And uh, it will always go down no matter whatever happens. It was the greatest weekend ever. And we dug up the time capsule and we had a wonderful time. And I had some colleagues who interviewed the kids because I had agreed to write something for the Jennings Foundation, who funded a little dinner. So they asked lots of questions, and probably four or five months later, the Jennings Foundation said, hey, you promised us an article. So I said, okay. So I had all these notes I'd never looked at that were transcribed from conversations colleagues had volunteered to do. I must have had 80 pages of notes. And this gets to what you were saying, Jessica, uh, because what people remember, uh, you know, Maya Angelou had that right when she talked about that uh, people forget what you say, they sometimes forget what you do, they rarely forget how you made them feel. And I know there had to be lots of feelings in these, but I read the notes and I will tell you candidly, uh, that was in the year 2000. I read those notes, and those notes were uh, 25 years old. And I just uh, uh, wept. I just, things I didn't even know. They had in their memory banks that I didn't. But as I wrote, there were five, I'm going to call them principles, that I think really matter, and I think they still matter. If I were a beginning teacher, or if I were a superintendent meeting with beginning teachers, I would say, I want you to check these five things with yourself. And I still think they're true. The tools have changed, but we still have, it's what I find when I teach classes at Ohio University. You still have space between you and kids. And that space defines what it's gonna be like. And in that space, here are five things that were appropriate, that kids said 25 years later for me, that I still say to myself. The first is uh, enthusiasm. 
you know, if you're not excited about something, it's a little hard for somebody else to be excited about something. And enthusiasm can be exhibited in lots of ways. It isn't just talking 800 words a minute. I mean, kids know whether or not you genuinely like them, like what you're doing, what you're trying to do, but ask your enthusiasm. You know, sometimes I used to, over the years, they'd say, oh, poor Carol is burnt out. Oh, poor Carol may never have been lit. Uh, so at the end of the day, if you're not enthusiastic about what it is you're trying to do, that matters. So what's your level of enthusiasm? Uh, you know, it's hard to light another candle if yours isn't lit. The second one I found was engagement. And this mattered even in the pandemic this spring. Adults and kids want to be engaged. And engaged is trying to figure out, here's one of those, uh, there's no Chinese proverb that I used in my head. It still is appropriate today, and it goes something like, uh, what I hear, I forget. What I see, I remember. What I do, I understand. And when you try to figure out how can I really engage kids in their own learning and uh, build on that. So it's not just telling them. It's not just explaining to them. It's not just showing them. It's taking it to higher levels to where kids have to thoughtfully and get engaged. So engagement matters. This one, I never thought about it. And it, with, with all the social unrest that we're seeing again, equality. Even in that rural school, equality there was seen boys and girls. Less capable, uh, more capable. Uh, wait time for kids. Uh, in answering, there was a sense of equality that was really important. Am I giving all my learners opportunities and not treating them the same, but treating them in ways that are appropriate for them? So equality still matters. We see it being played out now. Uh, the fourth E was expectation. Expectations matter. It's being able to see in kids what they don't see in themselves. And what you expect is what you'll get. And I would much rather expect more and for kids to say that's hard and work towards that than to lower the bar of expectations. Uh, I think that is a sin. Uh, poor performance is not a sin, but low aim is. I can remember when I was at Battel for Kids when NCLB first was passed, and I used to speak, and uh, people would ask me, they said, you really think 100% of the kids will be proficient in 2014? And I said, no, I don't. And then they'd want to go, aha, well, that's what the federal government thinks. And I said, but I don't quibble with that. I said, otherwise, do you want to put a sign out in front of your school? Welcome to Blank Elementary School. Some of the kids here will learn. Maybe yours will be one of them. Uh, that ought to be the bar. And uh, the sin is not if all kids don't get to 100%. The sin would be our aim isn't there. Uh, so expectations matter and individually matter. And then the last E was the one you mentioned. It's encouragement. It's oxygen to the soul. And uh, 
You can't expect for, you know, I want to encourage you along the way. When we talk about formative assessment and setting those targets, I don't expect you to get to that target immediately. I'm going to encourage you along the way because that's when the uh, real joy of teaching is uh, we sometimes take credit for somebody else's learning and we know we've just contributed to it. So if I were giving advice to teachers, those are five things. And I'd go through them again. How enthusiastic are you? Are you engaging kids? Are you ensuring equality of opportunity? Uh, are your expectations high? And do you encourage kids along the way? I think those are five. I'm not saying they are the principles, but I think they contribute to the kind of culture that leads to a place where kids and teachers both want to be. Absolutely. And I think those are the things that we want our kids to become when they're grownups, <laughs> passing on. I want to talk for a second about the notion of equality. This is one that is really the driving factor behind Mindful Literacy Columbus. For me, uh, what lights me up is sitting one-on-one -on -one and working with a student in a tutoring situation where, I can, right. where we are just locked into each other for 45 minutes to 60 minutes. I was thinking, People are paying me to do this. This is so fun. And I'm learning so much, <laughs> you know. And I thought about all of the students prior to that that I'd worked with um, who are not as privileged to get one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Um, you know, I did my dissertation in a city school where my kids were in, in my study, were going through serious trauma. Um, and at the time, I didn't really even understand how to how to handle it, but things you'd read about in the newspaper and just want to forget. But I couldn't forget because that the imprint that they made on me is now in my DNA. Like, and they're down the street for me. Um, and so last summer I called you and I said, Jim, I have an idea. And um, I'll never forget sitting in that coffee shop with you saying, how can I help? And the thing that mattered the most to me, because I really didn't believe in myself, I get these, I'm like a visionary, I get these big ideas, and then I don't really know how to execute them, and then I need lots of help. Like, I'm a team, like, I was on a rowing team. I will pull really hard for you when you tell me to go, but I can't do it by myself. <laughs> I need to be in a boat with other people, and I need a coach saying, all right, in five seconds, pull as hard as you can for 45 seconds. Right. <laughs> for you sitting across the table with me in that coffee shop last summer saying, I believe in you. But, I mean, I was like, you do? Great, because I'm not sure I believe in myself. So you saying <laughs> that to me, I'm just going to go ahead and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I want to tell you how much that meant to me and what an impact that's had on Mindful Literacy Columbus, even in, in its infancy. And I remember going to your class at Ohio University or teaching a, a non-for-profit class. And you're like, all right, make your pitch to the class. Let's see, let's see how we can all learn from each other. And I remember making my pitch. And even before that, I saw how you were interacting with those students at Ohio University and how they were interacting with you. And I was thinking about the relationships you would build up at Tell for Kids and why I was even sitting at Ohio University on a beautiful fall afternoon to begin with. Um, but after I made my pitch, and they gave such incredible feedback. And that drove me 
you to think, okay, I have to keep it way, way more simple right now in this first phase. And so right now I finally, Jim, like almost 11 months later, have my IRS paperwork. I have to go to the bank. Thank you. Um, uh, so I, I told, you know, you heard my pitch. It was, I right. this grant for $500,000. I want to open a center. I want to train teachers. I want 30 kids in there. I want to publish research. And, you know, you said, you can't be a player and a coach. You do what you do and you teach reading really well. So go do that. And, and the people will come help you build a ship. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing right now. As of right now, I just want to raise $5,600 to get one kid tutoring for the year. Good for you. So that's where we are. That's where we are with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Good. Uh, well, look, think big, start small. Uh, uh, you know, it does, it, I just think uh, the uh, sense of calling that you have and that we can become, we can become overwhelmed by the complexity of things because, but you say, okay, I am, I remember I only, I've only run one marathon. I just wanted to do it one time. And when I got to uh, different ones, I thought I just got to, my goal is to get to this next marker. When I get that next marker, then there'll be the next marker. And then pretty soon it's like, wait a minute, that's the last marker. I'm now 26 miles. So I, I'm a big believer in uh, one step in front of the other. Uh, think big, start small, move forward. Uh, it matters. Uh, and uh, th there was a guy who was so inspiring to me who worked with us at Battelle for Kids early on. He's passed away now. His name was Tom Suttis. And Tom Suttis was uh, back in the, about 1980, was the entrepreneur of the year in the country. He was Notre Dame's uh, chief fundraiser. Uh, he was the boxing coach at Notre Dame for 40 years. And he was the most, uh, he, he helped me in ways that I got to express to him many times about, you know, think simple, start, get some things done, build on to it. Uh, those things matter. And he was incredibly encouraging to me when we first started Battelle for Kids that there were steps that we could take to ultimately support ourselves after our gift from Battelle had expired. So good for you. And you're doing something that matters. And, uh, and we have, uh, during this time period, again, it throws wrinkles in, but in those wrinkles, I think there are opportunities. And you think about, well, how, how can I do this uh, uh, support it this way? Uh, so again, it's, it's the thinking around that and the what can I do, not what we can't do. Uh, this is when we are forced to do this. There are some opportunities in here. Absolutely. I think too. My, I love, first of all, I love all your metaphors and you're such a great storyteller. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think they're helpful. I think, you know, having some quotes to live by and mantras to live and breathe when you're going through tough times. One of the ones, uh, my husband is a, a tennis player and, you know, he'd say to me when there's, when there's been disappointments, um, he'd say, well, Roger Federer only allows himself to mourn a loss for, for hours. And after that, he goes back to the court and practices. 
That, it, 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 that's what we do. I would encourage my English teacher, I'm sure, to be proud of me because I know I have to be the only person at this age that still does a monthly book report. And because uh, I still like learning. And if people want to get my monthly book reports, they're, they're free. Uh, they can go to Jim W. Mahoney and get on my website. I'll send you. I, I promise you I'm not trying to sell you anything. Uh, I do a monthly book report that's intended to uh, help people think about things that are current. I just did one last month, a new book that came out called The Catalyst. And it's behaviors uh, and things that we can do that really begin to uh, create change. And we're in the middle of perhaps the most seismic change ever. So I, it seemed to be appropriate. So I didn't, uh, uh, if people want those, they're encouraged uh, to get those book notes. I'm happy to give those and uh, uh, share those. And then the other thing I want to tell you, it's taken three and a half years, but I'm getting there. Uh, I'm in the final stages with an editor around a book that uh, I finally completed. And it's filled with lots of lessons. It's aimed for teachers, school administrators, nonprofit leaders, different lessons. And uh, it's filled with uh, applications and illustrations and things that I've read, including one of my favorite from an area near you, uh, uh, lots of Dan Pink's work, uh, uh, a Bexley native who has written about motivation and a variety of other topics. But uh, I'm hoping that uh, by the first year that'll be out. But uh, I just wanna encourage you to continue doing what you're doing. And I wanna thank all those teachers out there uh, that as they head back this fall and genuine safety concerns for their kids, themselves. And I trust that school districts are gonna figure out uh, with parents and communities uh, how to make this work. And I try to separate the noise from the signal. There's a lot of noise from people that are a long way from central Ohio or southeastern Ohio where I started. But I guess I come back to communities. There's an, uh, maybe I'll finish with, there's an old Irish proverb. It is in the shelter of each other that people live. And communities, parents, administrators, teachers are going to figure out how to do this in a way that makes sense for their community that both safeguards kids and adults, but understands the importance of not remaining isolated forever too. And how we can still connect, we may just have to do it in different ways. So with that, I need to go because I have another thing. Uh, and I just wanna wish you good luck in what you're doing and stay in touch. Thank you so much, Jim. And I do encourage any teacher to read your book notes. I read them and I've read some fantastic books because of the notes you've written. And I cannot wait to get my hands on your book. Okay. Well, I'm hoping to get this done. I mean, it is going to get done. We're working with the uh, editor now. So hopefully by the first of the year. So uh, take care, be safe, your family and all the kids you teach. Thank you, I'm so grateful to you. Oh, glad to do it. Bye, Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. I hope you took a little something away that you can start implementing right away in your practice. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening with the deepest gratitude.